All right, Philippians chapter number three. I want to read our text tonight, and then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Uh, if you're a student of the Bible, then you're probably very familiar with the book of Philippians, uh, one of my favorite New Testament books. You stop and consider the situation the Apostle Paul is in and the things that he writes within the book of Philippians. It's astonishing to see how the Lord can give strength to persevere and serve the Lord even in the most desperate of situations. That's what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. And I want to pick up on that note this evening. I want to preach to you a thought that God laid on my heart. Philippians chapter number 3. Let's begin reading in verse number 15. The Bible says, Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this evening. Thank you for letting us gather here in the house of God. Lord, we don't take it lightly. There's a lot of folks that uh, they desire to be here and for one reason or another are unable to, some because of health, uh, some because of responsibilities, obligations. But Lord, here we are blessed to be in the house of God tonight, to be fed from your word, encouraged by one another. Lord, I pray that you would just deal with us according to thy will. These requests that have been given, Lord, would immediately escape my mind were I to try to recall every one of them. But my heart is burdened, Lord, for a lost and dying world. We were reminded even in the prayer requests that were given tonight, both that it is a lost and it is a dying world. At every moment, there's people step off into eternity. Lord, I just pray that you'd arrest our hearts and minds with that truth and reality. It's not comfortable. It'd be a lot easier just to drift on through, pretend like everybody's okay. But Lord, it wouldn't do justice to you or to the gospel. And it wouldn't be a help to those that are dying without you. So I pray that you'd burden our hearts. I pray that you'd arrest our attention. I pray that you'd give us a passion and a hunger to see people come to know Christ. And Lord, may we find opportunity as we follow you in obedience day by day. Meet every need that's been mentioned in these cards, and Lord, even the ones that weren't, but rest heavily upon hearts in this room. And I pray that tonight, as the word of God is preached, that you're, you would be glorified, that Christ would be magnified, and that we'd be transformed more into him, his image. Lord, we love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to picture with me for a moment the Apostle Paul, uh, up in years, with miles and miles of experience behind him. He is sitting in a Roman jail cell, chains upon his wrists, suffering for the testimony and witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but if I was Paul, and if I was in Paul's situation, I might be tempted to imagine and to believe that I had reached the apex of Christianity. I might be tempted to believe that whatever there is to learn, I'd have already learned it. I might be tempted to believe that if ever there was a man who had arrived, it would be me suffering for the testimony of the gospel. 
with years and years of, of, of reputation, credentials, and experience behind me, having been used of God in a mighty way for the cause of Christ. But when I read Paul's writing in the book of Philippians, I don't read the writing of a man who is resting on the laurels of his accomplishments. I don't read the story of a man who is resting in contentment for his Christianity. But rather, I read the story and the testimony of a man who even at advanced years, even being imprisoned, restrained against his will for the testimony of the gospel, even having already done more in his life than a thousand of the greatest preachers who've ever lived could do combined, I read the story of a man who's still hungering for more of Jesus Christ. I want you to listen to what he says in verse number 11. Paul says this, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, verse 12, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. Now, let's pause a moment and define that word perfect in the biblical context. When we think of the word perfect, we often think of something that is spotless or without any stain or without any blemish, something that uh, is in every way impeccable. But that's not what the word perfect most of the time means in your Bible. Rather, the word perfect, more often than not, carries with it the idea of completeness or maturity. In other words, something we could use this terminology that is fully ripe, something that is completely the way that it ought to be. And Paul says this, when I look at myself, I don't consider myself to be already achieved or already arrived or to have already attained. Paul said, you may look at my life and not see anything that is glaringly out of place. But he says, if you knew me the way God knows me and the way I know me, then you would recognize that, in fact, there's still much room for growth in the life of the Apostle Paul. He says, either we're already perfect. Then he says this, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Now let's pause for just a moment here and describe what he's following after and what he's endeavoring to apprehend. Paul uses the terminology in verse number 11, the resurrection of the dead. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. What does he mean by that? Is he suggesting that he is desiring to live so devoted to God that God will one day raise him from the dead? I don't believe so. That would certainly be out of keeping with everything else that Paul has written in the New Testament. Paul is not advocating for some sort of of merit-based salvation. He's not advocating for some sort of threshold whereby in his devotion he might cross and purchase to himself the status of the resurrection of the dead. But he tells us in verse 10, He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So when Paul talks about attaining to the resurrection of the dead, he's talking about knowing Christ in such intimacy and in such depth that it's as though he has died to self and his life is not, in fact, the expression of his own will, his own desires, his own ambitions and his own energy, but rather is a manifestation of the will and working of God through him. In other words, he's saying, just as he had written in the book of Romans, that he has been crucified with Christ, that he has died unto sin, that he might live unto God. 
And as he would say in the book of Galatians, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying, I am attaining to, aspiring to, I am pressing towards being less of me and more of Christ. Dying to self and letting Christ live through me. Now, despite that explanation, Paul, he doesn't say I'm there. He says, I'm not there yet. He doesn't say, I figured it out. He says, I still got more to figure out. And he says, this is what I am following after. You say, preacher, give me another example here in our text. Well, you notice what he says in verse 12. He says, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. By the way, this isn't my message, but let me just say how much I love the King James word apprehended in this verse. (laughs) He apprehended me. Amen. He laid hold on me. And Paul says he apprehended me for a purpose. Well, what is that purpose? Well, Paul said we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's dear son. Now, Paul, when he says that in the book of Romans, he doesn't mean that God is picking out a baseball team, choosing some to heaven, some to hell. But what he is saying is this, that every person that is born again by the grace of God, that has chosen Jesus Christ and been uh, washed in the blood of Christ, has been predestined to one day be made like unto Christ by the operation and miracle of God. Paul's saying this, that God saved me that I might be like Jesus. Now stop and think about what he says, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. Let's say it this way. Paul says, something's laid a hold of me, and I'm trying to lay a hold of what's laid a hold of me. In other words, Paul says, God saved me for a purpose, and I'm not waiting to heaven to see the realization of that purpose in my life. And he's saying, I'm not saying I've already fully realized it, but he does say this. He says, I follow after. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, reaching forth and pressing toward. Following after the desire, ambition, and aim of God in our life. This text opens with Paul recounting a little bit of his testimony. And he mentions three types of righteousness that he has interacted with in his life and in his ministry. Look at verse number four with me. Paul says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. Now, he just got through telling the church at Philippi to separate from those who would endeavor to find their identity in their own merit or self-righteousness. That those that would seek through good works and good deeds to uh, approve themselves unto God for the means of salvation. Paul says, you need to separate yourself from those people. Don't walk with those people. Don't let those people infect you or corrupt your Christianity. And then he lays a foundation for his authority in making that statement when he says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. Paul says, if there's anybody that could trust in self, it surely would have been Saul of Tarsus. He says, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul says, that's who and what I was in my own energy, in my own strength, and in my own ability. But he found something, he found a truth when he came to Jesus Christ. He found that he couldn't hang on to what he was, and be what God desired for him to be. We could say it this way. He couldn't hang on to that righteousness and have God's righteousness. He says in verse number seven, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. 
Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Let me just pause here and and take notice of something. When Paul says he suffered the loss of all things, some people have imagined he's talking about wealth, or he's talking about position, or he's talking about prosperity, he's talking about things that that he lost in suffering for Jesus Christ. But no, he's talking about his self-righteousness. He's talking about the things that he thought made him something special, made him something important, made him a cut above and cut from different cloth than other men. And he said, when I came to Christ, I had to throw all those things away. I do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of God by faith. I'm going to preach two points at one time here. The first thing we see is the righteousness he forsook, and it was his self-righteousness. Nobody ever comes to Christ without first acknowledging that they're incomplete in and of themselves. They're insufficient on their own. Nobody's ever come to Christ. Salvation is never supplemental. It's always completely and utterly transformative. It, it, It is not God saying, you're pretty good, but I can take you to the next level. But rather, it's him saying, you are utterly hopeless, and only in me can you find hope, freedom, and salvation. And Paul says that self-righteousness that I that I was looking to, that I was resting in, I had to cast that away before I could know the righteousness of God. And that's the second thing we see here, the righteousness that he found. We could say it this way, it's the Savior's righteousness. That's what he says in verse 9, be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. You know, that's the only kind of righteousness that the law could ever offer to a man in the Old Testament was self-righteousness. Because the law was not given that it might renovate a man's behavior per se. Now, it did regulate Israel's behavior to some degree and make them different from the Gentile nations around them. But the law never had the ability to renovate a man concerning who and what he was. Never had that capacity, was never intended for that purpose. The law was given not that men might be made righteous, but that they might be made guilty. Paul says that righteousness which I had in the law, that was self-righteousness. But he says, now I've found a better righteousness. That which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. It's interesting to note the two usages of the word faith there and and the words that surround it. He, He talks about the righteousness which is through the faith of Christ. And then he calls it the righteousness of God which is by faith. So it's of Christ's faith and through Christ's faith, but it's by faith in God. You say, what's the distinction there, preacher? Well, it's not just us coming to Christ and saying, make me a good Christian. It's rather us recognizing that it's only through the life of Christ being manifest through us that anything resembling Bible Christianity takes place. And when you came to God and believed in him, it wasn't you coming and saying, I'm pretty good, make me better. It was you coming and saying, I'm utterly hopeless, depraved, degenerate, debased. I'm everything wrong in the world. My attempts at righteousness are but filthy rags. And Lord, I need your righteousness, not mine. But it's interesting. He says this in verse 10. Now, in fact, I'm going to back up. Let me read verse 9 into verse 10. Because there's a third type of righteousness that he talks about. He says, and be found in him. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, what is that righteousness to produce in us? What does it result in us? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection 
of the dead. Not as though I'd already attained, either already perfect, but he says, I follow after. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. You see, we see the the, the righteousness that he forsook, his self-righteousness. And then we see the righteousness that he found. That's the Savior's righteousness. But the Savior's righteousness is to produce something in our life. And what is it to produce in our life? Not self-righteousness, but spiritual righteousness. We could call this the righteousness that he followed after. Paul says, in my life, I'm not contented myself with heaven simply as my home. I want Christ to have my here and now. I want you to listen. You, you, you can die a Christian never really having done much for Christ. You can. I'm glad. Listen, salvation's not predicated on our good deeds or on our merit. Thank the Lord, because none of us would get in were it the, the case that it was. But that also means this, that God can and will save a person. But it is then their choice whether or not they allow God to do something with their life and to use them for the glory of God. In other words, there can be positional righteousness laid to a man's account that cleanses him in the eyes of God and makes him judicially a child of God, transformed into being a son of God, and yet that righteousness never find any practical purchase in a meaningful way in that person's life such that they are a walking contradiction. I think we've got a lot of walking contradictions in Western churches today. People that would say with their lips, I am a Christian, but their life doesn't say anything like it. You say, preacher, what do you think about those people? Are they really saved or are they not? Well, if they came to Christ by faith, they're saved. And they don't have to pass a probationary period before we'll give credit to their testimony. But I would also say this, that where God is working in a person's heart and in a person's life, there will always be evidence of it. They may be saved and born again, but if you can't see the Lord working in their life, it's because they're not letting God work in their life. And a great many people have ceased to let God work in their life because some of them, after many long years of serving Him, and some of them, after just climbing up off of the altar of salvation, have decided they're enough and that there's no more work for God to do in their life. I just noticed tonight that that wasn't Paul's attitude. I'd notice that if a man like Paul would say this, Here he is getting ready to be martyred for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Here he is having uh, planted untold numbers of churches. Here he is having been the voice of God for a generation. And if he would say, I've not yet attained, I'm not already perfect, then what should you and I be saying? What should you and I be saying? And it's with that in mind that Paul makes this statement in verse 15. He says, let us therefore... As many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. I think one of the great tragedies when people study the Bible is how quickly we cast off context. You see words like wherefore and therefore in your Bible. They're not just there to lengthen the word count of the word of God. They're there for a reason. Paul says, let us therefore... As one man said, you've heard me say it, I'm a broken record. (laughs) The therefores are there for a reason. 
So Paul is saying this, everything I've spoken to you about concerning the positional righteousness we have in Christ, but the practical righteousness that God desires for us through our obedience and submission unto him and through the life of Christ being expressed and manifest through us day by day by the leadership of the Spirit of God. Everything he set forth as a thesis and as a testimony of his own life, he says, has led up to a conclusion. And his conclusion is that in light of all of these things, in light of the fact that we still need to grow, in light of the fact that we've not reached a state of uh, of impeccability, in light of the fact that God desires for us to be growing further, he then gives four instructions for the believer. We could say it this way. He gives four things that if you want to keep growing, these are things you're going to have to do. I don't know about you, but I want to keep growing in the Lord. I certainly don't think I've figured everything out. I sometimes wonder if I figured anything out. <laughs> and in my life, I never want to get to a place where I can't be taught, where I can't be told, where I can't be shown, and where I have no desire to grow any further in Christ. I don't think it is an overstatement or a dramatic statement to say that when we reach to the place that we're unwilling to grow, there's really no reason for us to be here any longer. Except God using our life as some tragic testimony, there's no good can come of it. When we reach a place where we say, I've got it all figured out, there's nothing more I need. Paul hadn't reached that place. I don't think you or I have reached that place. And so let's look at these four things, and then I'll be done tonight, that you and I, you say, preacher, I've been saved a lot of years. Well, Paul had too. Preacher, I've taught Sunday school, I've, I've, you know, witnessed, I've won people to Christ, I've led ministries, I've this, I've that. That's wonderful, I'm proud of all of that. Uh, and, and, and at the end, you let me know, I'll give you a cookie for it. But at the end of the day, Paul had done so much and more of that. And Paul says, I still need to grow. So how do we do that? I want you to notice these four things. Verse 15, he says, let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus mind. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? Paul said, I'm not already perfect. But then he says, let us therefore as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Now, there's sort of two perspectives you could take about his usage of the word perfect and his statement in verse number 15. One is you could assume he's saying that we are judicially or positionally perfect. And that then behooves some things in our life that then beckons some things from our life. And if that's what Paul means, I would certainly say amen to it. I will tell you this, that if your uh, intention in Christianity is to get to heaven looking as little like Christ as possible, there's something fundamentally wrong with your worldview. Your idea shouldn't be, well, let's see if I can get there without really having to ever sell out to Jesus Christ. That shouldn't be your attitude. But there's another perspective with which we might look at this phrase. He could be saying, as many as be perfect, meaning you are saved and therefore you are justified in the eyes of God. You are made positionally righteous in the eyes of God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But he could also be suggesting this. Remember what the word perfect means. It means mature. Could it be that what Paul's getting at is this? He's saying, I've not matured, but I am mature. In other words, maturity... The first hallmark is in recognizing your immaturity. You say, preacher, I've matured. If you mature, you'll recognize how immature you truly are. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. 
And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, he says this, God shall reveal even this unto you. I love what Paul says here. Paul says, listen, you think you've got it figured out. If you've got it figured out, then you've got it figured out that you don't have everything figured out. And if you've got it figured out already that you don't have everything figured out, then you ought to be willing to listen to God when God's ready to tell you what in the areas of your life you don't have figured out. He says, if in anything you be otherwise minded, what does he mean? If in any area of your life it doesn't align with the truth of Scripture and you are unwilling to heed what God has has said in his word, he says, God shall reveal even this unto you. In other words, God's going to keep speaking. The question is, will you keep listening? I would say, number one tonight, if you're going to continue to grow in the Lord, if you're going to reach forth and press toward, you're going to have to be willing to listen to God's voice. When you get to the place that God can't tell you, what hope is there for your walk with Christ? And listen, you say, well, preacher, that's a that's a lofty thing to say. No, I, I say it as a broken, guilty person. I say it as somebody that often God will deal with me and I will I will buffet his his words and, and his wooing. and I will thwart his working in my life. I'm as guilty of it as you are. I'm not saying I'm not guilty. I'm saying we're all guilty. And I'm saying if we want our life to be what Christ desires for us, we're going to have to recognize the propensity towards that and instead keep an extra close eye that when God is dealing with us, we're careful to hear what he has to say. It's one of the things the world doesn't understand about this exercise of of Bible preaching. There's probably not much in the world, activity-wise, that is more misunderstood than Bible preaching. There are certain people in the world, and even in what's called Christianity, or passes for it on YouTube at least, that that would suggest that that, that Bible preaching is really just a display of the intellect and and luminary brilliance of, of the pastor. I mean, they don't go to our church, but I mean, there's people that think that. Our people know better. Uh, some people, lost people, would think that all that it is is just religious fanaticism, that it's just, you know, nonsensical, illogical raving. Some would suggest that preaching is nothing more than pastor getting up and being as rude and crude and mean as he can possibly be. But that's none of it Bible preaching. What Bible preaching is, is taking a text in the Word of God, reading it, giving the sense and understanding of it, applying it to lives, and then allowing the Spirit of God to, with the voice of God, make particular application in the lives of those that are listening. When we get to a place that preaching don't hit us, something's wrong. We get to a place where the Spirit of God don't speak to us, something's wrong. Usually it's because we're unwilling For him to speak to us. He mentions two things here. I'll mention them briefly. Listening to the voice of God. Number one is he directs you. He says, let us therefore as many as be perfect, be thus minded. Now, what does he mean by thus minded? Well, he means this minded. In other words, Paul is saying, I have the right perspective on this. And your mind should be the same as my mind is on the matter. You shouldn't be contented with your level of devotion to Christ, and your level of consecration. You should be pressing towards. Now, Paul says this not just as a good example, although he certainly is, not just merely as a preacher or as a pastor, but he says this in apostolic authority, being the apostle Paul. And what he's saying is this, what I've disclosed to you, what I've revealed to you has set a standard in your life and you now have a responsibility to walk in the light and truth of it. Now, I'm not by any means suggesting that I speak as the Apostle Paul. I'm not suggesting that I speak ex-cathedra. The Catholics don't either, but they think they do. I'm not suggesting that I have any sort of apostolic authority. Anybody nowadays tells you they're an apostle, you better reach around and check your wallet, amen. Uh, They're not. But what I am saying is this, that the Word of God 
whom Paul in this epistle is dispensing sets the standard for our lives as to what our life should be. In other words, we have to be willing to hear the word of God when it directs our life. Paul says, this is a right standard. Now walk according to it. Not only as he directs us, but then we've already noticed. I'm not really going to preach it. I'll just mention it again. He says, and if any, anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Not only to the voice of God as he directs us, but as he corrects us. As he shows us where we're wrong. I'm wrong sometimes. Two, three times a decade. It happens. I'll be wrong about something. I've often said how naive it is. You'll hear people make the statement, well, you think you're right all the time. You ever heard somebody say, you just think you're right all the time. I know you husbands have heard somebody say that, but you you just think you're right all the time. I've always thought to myself, what a foolish statement that is to make. Duh. I'm not doing stuff I know is dumb, you know. Uh, That's how little they think of us men. (laughs) I'm not doing something I know to be stupid. Of course, I believe myself to be right and to walk around living in a in a nebulous world with no absolutes is not some sign of humility. We ought to have confidence and boldness in the choices that we make. But here's where humility lives. It lives in saying this. I believe I'm right, but I can be showed if I'm wrong. I believe that I'm right, but I can be showed if I'm wrong. Something's wrong when we can't be showed anymore. Something's wrong when we're unwilling to let God deal with us and correct us. So, number one, we have to be listening to the voice of God. Then look at verse 16. He says this, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. That's a fascinating verse, isn't it? Whereto we have already attained. Now, remember everything in its context. Paul has been talking about pressing toward and attaining. He's talking about that in the context of the advancing of your Christian walk. In other words, you're maturing as a believer, your devotion to Christ, your knowledge of him, your maturity in him. And here's what Paul says. Listen, whatever you do, just don't go backwards. Just don't go backwards. We could say it this way. We've got to listen to the voice of God, but we have to be willing to always look forward and never go backwards. I don't know about you. I'll I'll go ahead and give a testimony about my prayer life. You know what the greatest hindrance of my prayer life is? Is my own stubborn, sinful stupidity. You know, we talk about our our prayer meeting that we'll have, all-night prayer meeting coming up in in June, and, 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 and what a transformative moment it is. And I think a lot of the reason is because when people will devote enough time to get past the things that they've done wrong in their prayer life and get to a place of breaking new ground, then they find prayer to be a vibrant, refreshing, energetic activity. You know why so many of us struggle with prayer? We got to spend the first 90% of it just apologizing to God. I mean, you may not be like that. I hope you're not. If you're not, man, spend your extra time praying for me because I'm sure enough like that. And often in our lives, the great struggle is not that we can't find a way forward. It's that we won't quit trying to go backwards. We're like the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness. It ain't really so much what's in front of us that's getting us. It's what's behind us that's getting us. 
We spend too much time going back to old things and back to dead things. He has purged our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And we're instead spending our time going back to those things. Sometimes in guilt, sometimes in nostalgia, sometimes in participation. But we spend too much time letting ourselves slip backwards instead of focusing on maintaining where we're at and moving forward. He says this, he points to the progress we've experienced. He said, you've attained some things. Listen, thank God we've attained some things. I hope you have. I hope there's some things you can look at in your life and and say, I'm not what I used to be by the grace of God. But it's important not only the progress we've experienced, but to recognize the process that we've engaged in that got us there. He says, let us mind the same thing. It's so funny. Modern Christianity will, will follow anything shiny. It's all it takes, just something shiny. And there's always and forever some new book that's being released, some self-help perspective, some some writing, some material that's going to be the groundbreaking thing that's going to unlock all the various things in your Christianity that you've been missing. And, you know, that's a way to sell a lot of books. But the problem with it is it misses a fundamental biblical principle. It's that we don't need some new thing. He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Now, listen, lest you hear something I did not just say, I'm certainly proud to stand in what we often call the old time way. I'm I'm certainly proud to stand for what is often called old time religion. I, I think certainly that that new and modern and contemporary manners of worship and of music and and, and of ministry are are corrosive and corrupt and and damaging and destructive. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not just talking about having old-fashioned standards. I'm talking about in our life recognizing that it was those same things that God did in our life when He saved us and in often those infant days of our walk with Christ. You remember what it was like? You remember how you got where you got? I'll tell you how you got where you got by reading your Bible. I'll tell you how you got where you got by just being honest and praying to God and just talking to Him like He's there. I'll tell you how you got where you got. You got where you got by going to church, being faithful to it, even sometimes when you didn't feel like it, even sometimes when you didn't feel like you got anything out of it. You just went anyway. You knew it was the right thing to do, that it pleased the Lord. And those very fundamental building blocks are what got you to whatever level of development you're at. And Paul says, hey, listen, let us mind the same thing. He says, we have reached a place. Let us not go backwards and let us do more of the same to go forward. Look at verse 17 with me. I told you four things. We'll get to them. you got at least three, four more hours before you pass out. Verse 17, Paul says this, brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. Preacher, how can I keep growing in the Lord, pressing forward and reaching forth? How can I do that? Well, one of the things you can do is you can learn from faithful Christians. Paul says, find somebody doing it and follow what they're doing. We preached on this. I don't know when it was. I guess last Sunday night or last Wednesday night or sometime in the last five years I preached on this. And we talked about this thing of following biblical godly examples. I, there, there's been a knee-jerk reaction some, in some ways in the world that we live in because of, there's such an obsession with the notion of, of individualism. Now, I, I believe that God created us as individuals. 
And I believe that God has created us as, as unique people. I've pastored too many Baptists for too long to believe there ain't all different sorts. But sometimes there is within that this, this mythic proprietary nobility in the idea of walking a path your own way. You know a good way to tire yourself out? Blaze a new path everywhere you go. Now, we had this snow just back of this, and we don't ever get no kind of snow like it. Listen, if you move from up north, that we don't that don't happen very often ever. That's why people can't drive. That's why we run out of salt. That's why we shut down for a month at a time because we don't we don't think it'll ever snow. <laughs> and then it does, and then uh, and then we don't know what to do with it. Well, we had all that snow, and and the boys got out and played with it. We got we got to actually take them sledding, and uh, you know just a bunch of wonderful, awesome stuff that some of y'all do all the time and don't think is impressive, but but. When we were doing that, Schofield, little fella, he'd have trouble walking through that snow. I mean, it was tall. You know, I mean, it was on him, it was way up there. And so what I would do is when we were cutting sled tracks and going back and forth, if we were, if you were walking through the fields, I'd tell him, I'd say, now get in my footpath and walk behind me. Now, I wasn't doing that because I thought he was going to get lost. I was doing that because it would be easier for him to walk that path after I had walked that path. And I would deliberately, when I was going through the snow, I'd try to kick snow out of the way as I was walking. <laughs> like to kill me. And, and try to make it easier on him following me. Invariably, when they wouldn't listen, decide they want to go a different direction, they'd start getting tired. And I'd say, well, why are, you, why are you going that direction? Why are you cutting a new path? Walk in the path that's already been cut. One, I provide a decent amount of draft behind me. <laughs> But beyond that, I'm kicking the snow out of the way and making it easier. And there's been this sort of mythic nobility of this idea of why I go my own way. I do my own thing. I do it my own way. Well, listen, there's times you're going to have to walk your own way because no one will follow Christ. I understand that. But be careful of this notion of allowing pride to drive you to disregard the testimonies and example of faithful people that God puts in your life. Paul says, listen, God's giving you some people that you can follow after. Paul says, it's not me. I've not got a corner on the market. He says, be ye followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. He says, if you find other people that are getting it done for God, other people that are living for Christ, follow them as well. Paul says, this isn't about inflating me. It's not about building an empire. It's not about stroking my ego. But it is about helping you to understand that God gives us biblical examples and godly examples that they might be a blessing to us. He mentions the examples that can help us in verse 17. But in verse 18, he mentions some examples that can hinder us. He says this, and by the way, this is one of the parenthetical statements in your Bible. You ought to do a study sometime of these parenthetical statements. He says, for many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. Now, there's sort of two perspectives a person could take about that phrase. One would be that the people that Paul is talking about are saved people who have unfortunately walked away from the Lord. I don't believe that's what Paul's saying. You can disagree with that. You're more than welcome to. Nobody will pay you to do it, but you're welcome to do that if you want. But I don't think Paul's talking about saved people who have walked away from the Lord. Rather, I think he's talking about people that at one time posed as saved people, posed as Christians, that at one time feigned to know the Lord, but in fact found out that they did not. John would talk about these people and say they went out from amongst us because they were not of us. And I think that's probably who Paul's talking about. But then that begs this question, why does he bring them up? 
Because if you're not careful, what you'd be tempted to think is that Paul is saying, you ought to follow us or you're going to wind up like them because they didn't follow us. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. They didn't wind up the way they did because they didn't follow Paul. Follow Paul. They wound up the way they did because they didn't know Christ in the first place. So what then is the sense and meaning for which Paul is saying this? Here is what I think he's driving at. He's saying this. You ought to learn from the right kind, but be careful of the wrong kind. He mentions these examples that can help us. There's people, godly people in your life that you can follow their example. But he says, don't go following everybody because some people lead you astray. Saying some of these people who at one time he says, I I have told you often. In other words, he said, I I talked to you about these people. I wrote to you about them. They served with me. They labored with me. And then come to find out, man, they didn't even know the God that I know. He says, you got to be careful who you mark and who you watch and who you follow. Learning from faithful Christians. I'll give you one final one. I'll be done tonight. Uh, I'm going to read verse 17 into verse 20. And I'll explain why here in a moment. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. For our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Now, I skipped over verses 18 and 19 in the reading of that, because verses 18 and 19 are a parenthetical statement. Say, well, preacher, what does that mean? Does it mean it don't belong? No, it belongs there. Preacher, do you think it should have been in a different place? No, it should have been exactly where God put it. But the parentheses matter, too. And oftentimes, if you're not careful, when you read a parenthetical statement in the Bible, you will lose the overall thread of the argument that's being made. Perfect example of that is in the book Romans, chapter number 5, where there's a very lengthy parenthetical statement regarding Adam and regarding sin. And it'll help you sometimes when you come across these parenthetical statements. Here's what I do. You don't have to do it my way, but here's what I do. I will read the text, unbroken, including the parenthetical statement, from beginning till the end, whatever that portion of the text is. Then I'll go back. And I'll read the parenthetical statement by itself. Then I'll go back and I'll read the verses bordering or or on the perimeter of that parenthetical statement the way that I did just a moment ago. And then finally, I'll go back and read it all in its entirety again. Because sometimes you'll miss both the force and meaning of the parenthetical statement within the context. But you'll also lose the thread of the statement that's been made. Paul says this. Follow, be a follower together of me. Mark them which walk so as you have us for an ensample. For our conversation is in heaven. What does he mean when he says that our conversation is in heaven? Is he saying he's speaking in a heavenly tongue? No. Is he saying that the conversations they have are heard in heaven but nowhere else? No. See, there's another good King James Bible word, conversation. Conversation is an interesting word in your Bible. We think of it as people having having language discussions or or audible discussions one with another. Like me and you, if you were talking, we'd be having a conversation. But I love the way the Bible uses the term conversation because what it really deals with is the manner of a person's life. It's interesting because just as words express what's in the mind and the heart, outwardly and prove outwardly what dwells within. So likewise, the way we live expresses what lives in our mind and in our heart. So the word conversation here is talking about our manner of living or our life. Paul says, you ought to follow us. You know why? Because our life's not here. Our life's in heaven. 
And he says, with that in mind, we ought to be looking for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Preacher, how can I keep growing in the Lord? How can I keep pressing toward and reaching forth? Well, you've got to listen to the voice of God. You've got to look forward and not backwards. You've got to learn from faithful Christians. But then I would say this, you need to always be looking to the Savior. Paul says, our conversation is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if we have any life, it's from heaven. If we have any life, it's in heaven. Paul says there's a direct correlation between what's going on in heaven and what's going on in here. And if what's going on in here, which leads to what goes on with these hands and these feet, is going to be animated in any way, is going to be blessed in any way, is going to be empowered in any way, it's going to have to be that the life, here's how he says it in the book of Colossians, for our life is hid with Christ in God. In other words, the capability or the means to live the life that God intends for you and I doesn't reside within us. It's not some great abiding light within us in our goodness, in our capability. It's not a matter of tapping unmet or unrealized potential. I'll be honest with you. Most of us don't have all that much potential. We really don't. I mean, I know you came to be encouraged tonight in the house of the Lord, and I'll just encourage you saying, you ain't that great. <laughs> You ain't. I'm not. None of us are. No, instead, just by the way, interesting. It's almost like Paul was just talking about this earlier in the chapter when he talked about attaining unto the resurrection of the dead, dying to self and finding strength and power in the life of Christ lived through us. Let's say it this way. We need to be looking to the Savior, number one, for the help that strengthens us. See, if you think this thing is about him just giving you a little leg up so that you can be a better you, you've missed. It's instead about casting away all confidence in yourself and casting all your confidence upon him. It's about confessing and admitting to him, not I'm so great, God, help me be better. But Lord, I am helpless. If I lean on me, I'm going to fail every time. I'm going to mess up every time. Every temptation comes along, I'll run straight into its arms. Everything that happens, every decision that has to be made, if I lean under my own understanding, I will invariably, inevitably make the wrong one. And even if I happen to make the right thing, I will get the wrong thing out of the right decision that I made. God, it's got to be you in my life. I can't do it. I need the Holy Spirit of God to lead me. I need the Word of God to instruct me and correct me. I need God in His providence to orchestrate and coordinate my life. I need the Lord through His power and His strength to give me the ability and the, and the stamina and the persistence that I need to stay faithful to the Lord. I need Him for everything. In other words, you have no life. Your life is in Him. For the help that strengthens us. And then I like verse 21. For a lot of reasons. I just like it for one. But it says in verse 21, who shall change our vile body. I've always thought it's funny when you, when you read that verse to young people. Because they think that's weird. Our vile body. Because they don't think their body's vile. But let them walk with it for another 20, 30 years. You know? As one brother said, get to the place where you put more yourself in the nightstand than you do into the bed at night. And... uh They'll, they'll understand. Paul's a man who's infirmed, who's weak, who, who, whose body is failing him. And he says, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. 
It's funny, when a person is young, their body will do more than their mind will. But as they get older, their mind will do more than their body will. Paul's at a place where his mind will do more than his body will. He feels in many ways shackled by the vessel that he's in. He'd still love to go. He'd still love to serve. He'd still love to preach. But he can't. His body won't allow. Even if they didn't have shackles on his wrists, he can't do what he used to could have done. But he finds that the strength that he needs day by day to not give up and to not quit, but to keep pushing forward serving the Lord is found in the hope and reality that one day God is going to change that vile body. That this is not the end of all things. That we are not just on a death march towards despair and annihilation, but we're on an upward march towards glory and towards a new body. We look to Him for the hope that sustains us. Here's the simple question I want to ask, and I'm done. Do you feel like you've arrived? If you've not, are you willing to go further? Do you feel like you've got it all figured out? Or do you have the humility to admit you don't? Do you think that you've grown all there is to grow? Or are you willing to admit that you can always grow more? And having admitted that, are you willing to let God grow you further by doing these things? Let's bow together tonight. A musician's going to come and play. And I just want to give you an opportunity. If the Lord dealt with your heart about some matter. A lot of things said tonight. A lot of things touched on tonight. What did God deal with you about this evening? If he dealt with you about something, would you meet him in this altar? Let him have his will and way. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.